You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 357 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich, and sadly, Tracy won't be joining us today. She actually has some work to do this weekend, so the podcast boss said she could pass on recording this weekend, but the boss said I still had to put out an episode. So, well, here you are, stuck with me. Uh, If it's any consolation, it will be a shorter episode, though, since, like many of you on this holiday weekend, we want to still take some time to enjoy the 4th. But anyway, what we thought we'd do with this first part of the show is to say a few words by way of review to wrap things up, I guess, uh, with regard to what happened on July 2nd and the fierce battle for the Union left and center. Uh, before we use the second part of this show to start to set the stage as we get ready to move the discussion along to the fighting which was still underway on the evening of July 2nd on the Union right, where the Confederates attacked Culp's Hill and East Cemetery Hill. So, first part of this episode, review what has already taken place on July 2nd. Second part of the show, set the stage for the heavy fighting for Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill. By twilight at about 8 p.m. on July 2nd, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, except for scattered musket shots and the occasional deep-throated boom of a cannon, the intense fighting on the federal left and center had come to an end. Long before the main combat had come to a halt, though, dozens of stretcher bearers were busy moving across the battlefield, checking bodies, assisting the wounded, and removing the men who weren't able to walk and get themselves to one of the field hospitals. Sergeant John Plummer of the 1st Minnesota recalled that before his regiment's charge that evening, quote, ambulances and the ambulance men were brought up near the lines and stretchers gotten ready for use. Who of us could tell but that he would be the first to need them? 
And now hundreds of men joined the stretcher bearers in searching the battlefield for the dead who were beyond all help and the wounded who might still benefit from timely assistance. But there were so many. The dead and maimed who fell during the long fight for the Union left and center covered the entire battlefield here from north of the Kadori farm back below the gentle slope of Cemetery Ridge, up along the Emmitsburg Road, through the Peach Orchard, back to the Trossel Farm, down to Stony Hill in the Wheatfield, along the Plum Run Valley and Hauk's Ridge and amidst the tumbled boulders of Devil's Den and on the shoulders of Little Round Top. That entire stretch of ground here on this part of the battlefield was nothing more than one giant, horrible scene of human carnage that all but defied description. Bodies by the thousands lay everywhere. As darkness covered the field and the sulfurous smoke of battle dissipated, the firing stopped and an eerie quiet of a different sort descended upon the torn landscape. The moon rose an hour past sunset, casting its light on ground covered in gruesome shapes and horrid shadows. The sounds of battle were replaced with what one soldier described as a, quote, low, steady, indescribable moan. Here and there moving about were small circles of light cast by lanterns, held by those still searching the field for the wounded. The dead would have to wait. A soldier in the 126th New York of Willard's Brigade later admitted, quote, Nothing could have been more dismal and appalling than searching over a battlefield in the dark night for a friend or comrade. To turn up one dead, cold face after another to the glimmering light of a lantern and see it marred with wounds and disfigured with blood and soil, the features perhaps convulsed by the death agony, the eyes vacant and staring. End quote. Of the three days of the battle, July 2nd was the bloodiest of them all. It would be a long and terrible night for the wounded, as well as those charged with caring for them. James Longstreet would later famously describe the Confederate attacks that took place on July 2nd during his big assault on the Union left as, quote, the best three hours fighting ever done by any troops on any battlefield, end quote. The best three hours fighting ever done by any troops on any battlefield. Well, that's quite a claim and some might be inclined to argue its merits, especially those like us who like to point out that it was all for naught. Brave and bold the Confederate soldiers here may have been, but when all was said and done, they'd failed in that endeavor for which they'd exerted themselves and spilled their blood. To put it plainly, when all was said and done, 
here on the Union left and center on July 2nd, the rebels had been outfought by the officers and men of the Army of the Potomac. And ladies and gentlemen, there is no arguing the merits of that claim. It's a fact. The failure of the Confederate attacks here to break the Federals and roll up their line, as Lee hoped would happen, was a blood-stained disaster. True, Longstreet's assault effectively destroyed Dan Sickles' Third Corps as a viable fighting unit. But Robert E. Lee's ambition for the second day of the battle hadn't been to beat up an exposed and vulnerable Federal Corps. No, Lee set out on July 2nd to defeat the Army of the Potomac by rolling up its left flank and or punch through the Union line and rout the Yankee army off the field. Lee failed in this ambitious objective for a variety of reasons, from starting off with flawed intelligence to lack of tactical coordination in what became essentially a disjointed series of brigade attacks, to an absence of reserves to exploit lodgements and potential breakthroughs. And so, when the sun set on July 2nd, after some of the most intense and horrific combat of the Civil War, Robert E. Lee and his subordinates had been outgeneraled and outfought by George Meade and the officers and men of the Army of the Potomac. And that meant the Federals here were still in position and ready to fight the following day. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. As you guys will no doubt recall, part of Lee's plan for July 2nd was that while Longstreet launched the main Confederate assault against the left end of the Federal's fishhook line of defense, Second Corps Commander Dick Ewell was to demonstrate against the other end of the Union line and to convert that demonstration into a real attack should the opportunity present itself. And so, there, on that bloody Thursday, a separate struggle was in progress, one that would grow to pose its own serious threat to the federal position at Gettysburg. Lee's orders to Yule called for him to start his demonstration as soon as Longstreet began his assault on the opposite end of the enemy line. But, of course, Longstreet's assault was delayed by marching and countermarching and the troops getting into position, and so didn't kick off until late that afternoon. And so that meant that all throughout that hot summer day, Dick Yule and his men waited, and waited, and then waited some more. For the men of Allegheny Johnson's and Jubal Early's divisions, positioned east of town, the wait was particularly grueling, because for many of them there was little in the way of shade, and so the merciless July sun beat down on them hour after hour. To their fronts were Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill, and while both were strong defensive positions, Culp's Hill, at the tip of the hook of the Federal's fishhook line of defense, was especially formidable, since it was the steeper of the two, and its slopes were littered with boulders and covered by trees. To make matters worse for the Confederates drawn up opposite Culp's Hill, as the hours ticked by and as they waited in anticipation, they could hear the Yankees over across the way felling trees and constructing breastworks on the hilltop and essentially turning Culp's Hill into a fortress. One rebel remembered hearing the enemy troops, quote, chopping away and working like beavers, end quote. Another Confederate said that, quote, Greatly did the officers and men marvel as the morning, noon, and afternoon passed in inaction, on our part, not on the enemy's, for, as we all well knew, he was plying axe and pick and shovel, fortifying a position which was already sufficiently formidable, end quote. Well, and that seems like a good point to leave things for now with um, starting to set the stage for this part of the action on July 2nd as Yule's Confederates continue to wait, expecting every moment to hear the sound of Longstreet's cannon booming off to the south. (laughs) 
That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is in two parts, as we look back at a couple of units we talked about in the last episode. We talked about the famous charge of the 1st Minnesota, and there's actually a good book about that regiment if you're interested in checking it out. It's The Last Full Measure, The Life and Death of the 1st Minnesota Volunteers by Richard Moe. And then we also talked about the less famous charge of, and redemption of, Willard's New York Brigade, the Harper's Ferry Cowards. If you'd like to dig deeper into that story, you might want to pick up issues 7 and 8 of Gettysburg Magazine, where you'll find parts 1 and 2 of an article by Eric Campbell titled, Remember Harper's Ferry, the Degradation, Humiliation, and Redemption of Colonel George L. Willard's Brigade. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations in a handy, if lengthy, list at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then, as we wrap up this show, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Andrew K., Stan S., Jane H., Joanna R., and Peter H., And also a huge thank you to Paul M., Sean S., Matthew F., Dion D., and Stuart C. for their recent donations. Well, I think that's it. We made it. Thanks for sticking it through. And by the way, Tracy sat here listening as I recorded, so it was a bit weird to have an audience, even if it was just her. Anyway... Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.